Hello, and welcome to the January IBMS Pod. In this episode, we talk to Infection Sciences Operational Manager Deborah Padgett about her career, the pandemic, and her new role as the IBMS President-Elect. After this, we catch up with Kip Heath, where the chat about biomedical science-themed stand-up comedy. First up, the news. Hello, and welcome to January's IBMS Pod. I'm Jordan, and here are your latest headlines from the IBMS. Fellow Deborah Padgett has been confirmed as the new president-elect of the IBMS. Deborah is Infection Sciences Manager in North Cumbria and has been a member of council for eight years. She will serve alongside President Alan Wilson in 2021 before taking over the position next year. She will be joining us on the podcast in a moment. In other news, Chief Executive Officer Jill Rodney will retire in March after a decade in the role. In a statement following the announcement, she said it had been a privilege and pleasure to spend the last decade leading the Institute and her sadness would be eclipsed by happy memories of serving this wonderful organisation. Also this month, Jill Rodney has written a letter of support for members seeking education provision for their children during the COVID-19 pandemic. It is available to download and print on our website now. And finally, don't miss your opportunity to shape the future of the IBMS. Nominations have now opened for this year's council elections and will close on the 4th of March. If you're interested in running, the nomination form and guidelines on canvassing can be found in our show notes, along with more information on all of our stories. Welcome to Deborah Padgett, who is Infection Sciences Operation Manager in North Cumbria and is also the IBMS President-Elect. Deborah, can you give us a bit of background and biography, please? Yeah, certainly. Afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, as uh, Rob rightly says, I'm um, Infection Sciences Operational Manager here in North Cumbria, based in Carlisle, um, and we have a satellite laboratory out in the West Cumberland site as well. Um, and I have the great honour of um, being President-elect as of the 1st of January. Um, so looking forward to my new role with the Institute, having been on council for the last eight years. Um, it's great to be able to step into the president-elect role and look forward to the presidency this time next year. A little bit of background about me. Um, I'm a career-bred biomedical scientist, and if you cut me in half, I would say a biomedical scientist all the way through. Um, I went to the University of Sunderland, back in the day um, and actually started with an um, HND in applied biology when my A-levels didn't quite go the way that I wanted them to go um, and did my HND as um, a way of getting into university and transferred onto the BSc honours course in physiology. So my primary degree isn't in biomedical science but that isn't any reason to stop you following the career path of your choice. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I'm really passionate about. There are a lot of routes of entry to our fantastic profession. And I took a bit of a sideline to get there in the first instance. I was going to ask, why did you take that, that sideline? Sorry, Deborah, I think there's a slight delay on the call. I knew I wanted to go to university. My first choice was actually pharmacology. That was the um, course that I applied for. Um, but when I didn't quite get the grades for that, um, I went through clearing and um, applied into the HND applied biology course and then did my physiology degree um, because I knew I still wanted to be in science. That was where my heart was. 
Um, and having an open degree like a physiology one just gave me a little bit wider scope to be able to apply it in different settings. So I graduated um, in 1999, feels like a different lifetime, um, from Sunderland, um, but that's also where I met my hubby. Um, and he's a Cumbrian born and bred, so he finished the year before me. Um, he moved back over to Cumbria and then I followed him when I graduated the year later. Luckily, there was a job going in the lab that I now manage. Um, and I applied for the job as a medical laboratory assistant all those years ago and was successful in getting it. Um, and that was my first experience of working in a laboratory setting and providing uh, testing for our patients. I fell in love with it then, although there were definitely aspects of the job that I wasn't so keen on, um, but that wasn't going to stop me. Um, and I was lucky that within six months, a trainee biomedical scientist post became available. And I had a very forward-thinking um, senior biomedical scientist training officer that I had the fortune of training with, um, who recommended that I could go back to university and do the degree top-ups to allow me to be able to become an HCPC registered biomedical scientist. And WorkPaid funded me to be able to do that. So I did, I went to Northumbria University on day release for a year, did my top ups, did the old fashioned blue book that I'm sure quite a few people listening to this will be well aware of, um, and became HCPC registered. And started my life as a biomedical scientist in microbiology, and that's, that's my base subject. Um, I'm a microbiologist by training. I love parasitology and I love mycology as my two specialists. Um, and it's great to be back managing the department that I started in. But I moved forward um, and I did my master's in medical microbiology and I did that in Bristol at the University of the West of England. Um, moved into a senior biomedical scientist role um, and then kind of got stuck there for a little while. Um, and that, that's so often the case and something that we hear an awful lot about from scientists around the country that um, feel like they're gathering qualifications but not necessarily moving up the career ladder um, and something that I definitely say to a lot of my staff and that's that point in your career where it's just about gathering skills and the qualifications and the things that you need to be able to progress and move forward. I was lucky two things happened at once for me um, one, Jill Rodney came to Cumbria to give a presentation to IBMS Cumbria branch. And I should say, um, from the day I joined the profession as a biomedical scientist, I joined the institute as well. Um, we've always been very proactive in Cumbria about it's part of what we do as biomedical scientists. We're part of the professional body as well. Um, but Jill came up to give a talk. She not long taken over as chief exec. She's a very inspiring lady to listen to. Um, and she persuaded me that considering joining council would be a good idea. And I applied for a national seat back then. Um, but I also applied uh, for the pathology quality managers post at the same time. And I was lucky because I got both. And, and really that's, they were the two key points um, that really changed where my career progressed at, at that time. Um, and that was back in 2012. 
spent five years as pathology quality manager when we were going through the transition to ISO 15189, which was an amazing opportunity to be part of, terrifying, stressful, all of those words, um, but still fantastic. And because I was on council, I was able to help shape the quality agenda for the Institute as well. Um, deliver lots of lectures on behalf of the Institute, travel around the country giving lectures and symposiums on quality management. Um, and then three years ago, just over, um, I moved into this current role as Infection Sciences Operational Manager and did that just in time for a pandemic, which <laughs> I'm not sure whether that was good timing or not, but it certainly kept me on my feet for the last year. Just very quickly, before I hand you over to Jordan, who I'm sure has got some more questions about uh, your role in the pandemic, especially. Um, yeah. Why on earth did you want to be president-elect, or why did you want to be president, I suppose, and what does president-elect actually involve for people who aren't sure what that role means? Um, so uh, a little bit about the president's role in the first instance and, and how, how it works. Um, so if you are lucky to be nominated, you are nominated by your colleagues on council to become president-elect. So you have to be nominated and seconded by someone else that's on council. And I had two very kind colleagues that approached me and asked if they could um, put me forward, which is a huge honour. Um, so you sit as president-elect for the, for the first year, um, then as president for two years, and then as past president for a year at the end. And my role as president-elect is really to support Alan in his role as president at the moment. So I'm there really to deputise for him and to provide him with some support. Um, obviously, at the moment, we're going through the process of appointing a new chief exec to replace. Um, not that we can replace Jill, but uh, to appoint a new chief exec into, into that role. Um, but it's also about helping to shape the direction of travel and deliver the strategy for the Institute um, and for our amazing members and the profession that we all represent. Um, and so I'm there in a, in a more supporting, deputising role at the moment. Um, and then this time next year, hit the reins. <laughs> um, and hopefully we'll be at the end of a pandemic and um, we can go back to a lot of the other stuff that's um, part of our strategy for moving the Institute forward. What do you hope to achieve when, when you become president? I still can't wrap my head around this president word. Um, and, um, I'm a biomedical scientist at heart um, and I will always work to represent and advocate, advocate for um, our members. And that will always be my key role to hear what they have to say and to try and work to deliver what they need um, as their head representative for the profession. The key things that we need to think about and the key things that are um, really clear at the moment is capitalising whilst the pandemic has been absolutely horrendous for so many people and so many people have lost people close to them. It's also been um, an amazing opportunity for us as a profession to be seen and to be heard um, and to develop um, where we're at, um, especially with our key stakeholders in government and within the Department of Health and all of those. Um, so it's really important that we capitalise on that 
when we come out of the pandemic. A key role for the president and the president-elect is to ensure that those relationships are fostered and that we maintain that level of credibility that we've been able to demonstrate um, and, and really show what role we have in the patient pathway. Um, but also there's the business as usual stuff. Um, so as well as all of the usual advocating for the profession, we really need to develop our um, uh, advanced practice roles. Um, and that's the key thing that we need to get back to focusing on. Um, so having advanced clinical practice as a biomedical scientist and not just as a clinical scientist or a medic within pathology, both of which roles are absolutely essential, but we have a role to play at that higher level as well. Um, and ensuring that that is available across all of the disciplines over the coming years is absolutely essential and, and one of the key things that we'll be working on um, in the next couple of years. Mm. Lots of other stuff as well, yeah. though. We've got, a, we've got a new website to deliver in the midst of all of this and, and lots of other exciting things. So in your role as Infection Sciences Operational Manager, um, what are your main responsibilities? What do you kind of do on a daily basis? Um, so, Infection Sciences in North Cumbria um, incorporates microbiology, virology and immunology. Um, and my immunology and virology department um, cohabit the laboratory space and my team are all multidisciplinary trained across virology and immunology. Um, and as you can imagine, that team is just a little bit busy at the moment. Mm. Um, so I have the luxury of looking after all three of my favourite disciplines every day. Um, and I, the thing that concerns me most at the moment is, whilst we are getting um, an awful lot of airtime um, with regard to COVID testing and the role of the laboratory in that, um, I think it's often forgotten that we do so many other tests on a daily basis mm -hmm. um, and that work is still going on within the department um, so as well as ensuring that yes we are managing the COVID testing and I'll come back to that I'm sure you'll ask me more about the pandemic um, but um, we are still providing all of the usual testing that, that goes on so within microbiology we're still doing urine testing and enteric samples and respiratory samples for things other than COVID. Um, immunology and virology still have all of our sexual health samples going through and all of our autoimmune samples that have been tested for things like um, celiac disease um, and all of those samples are still going through. I still have the luxury of a UCAS assessment to look forward to a week on Monday. Um, so all of that still needs to be prepped um, and the business as usual is still happening. Um, but yeah, COVID is absolutely um, foremost in our minds every day just at the moment. So on the topic of COVID then, how has it impacted your role and how have you and the lab responded to the challenges it's presented? I think it's, it's impacted beyond anything that we could have ever imagined. I mean, we are used to seasonal flu. Um, we used to think that was quite bad, but actually it's a bit of a walk in the park now by comparison to this. Um, but we've responded by doing it as a team. Um, and I have an amazing team up here. Um, 
So I have uh, team managers within my department. So my, my band seven team managers and then my, both my biomedical scientists, but also my medical laboratory staff, my support workers staff who we just, we couldn't do this without them either. And they're often forgotten about. Um, at the moment, this is really timely during this interview now. I don't know whether anyone saw the national news last night, but Carlisle made the national news, news last night. Um, we have the highest infection rate across the UK um, at the moment. Um, and it's particularly bad. Um, at the moment, we're receiving just shy of a thousand samples a day, which for a small district general hospital um, in sunny Cumbria, that's that's a high sample load to be getting through. Um, we've brought online new technology um, like everywhere else has. Um, and we've changed the working pattern for both the technology that we did have. So we have a Roche 6800 that was used for sexual health testing. And we now use that for COVID as well. But we've also brought online other new testing platforms. And as of today, we have nine different technologies available providing COVID testing because of the issues that we've had with supply chain and consistency of delivery of reagents. Um, and if it's taught us anything, it's taught us not to have all of our eggs in one basket or even just to have one basket. You need multiple baskets with multiple eggs. But the team have been brilliant. They were used to be in a nine till five, Monday to Friday laboratory service. We now work a very extended day, seven days a week. I don't think anyone leaves this department on time anymore. I know I certainly don't, but the team don't either. But they are always there to support one another um, and to help out. Um, and seeing the response from the trust um, and understanding the role that infection sciences and pathology as a whole. Um, and I think that's the other key thing. Whilst I'm infection sciences manager, I have a responsibility to pathology as a whole. Um, and our blood sciences colleagues around the corner have stepped in and, and they're doing testing for us overnight, which is brilliant. Our mortuary colleagues mustn't ever be forgotten either. They are really, really struggling again at the moment. Um, and capacity is a problem, not just for us, but for them as well. Um, so yeah, it's busy. Um, no two days are ever the same working down here, although at the moment there are some days that just feel a little bit monotonous um, dealing with samples as they come in, unbagged, numbered up and deciding which platform to go on or which platform we have reagents for today. Uh, can I just jump in and ask, um, with, with you having the highest rates in the UK, are there any particular drivers that are behind that, do you think? And is there anything that could have been done to avoid that? Or is this simply, we've got this new strain of COVID, it's got a high level of prevalence where you are, and it was always going to happen? Um, Rob, I really wish I knew the answer to that. And I think understanding the genetic side of it is going to be really, really important when we get to the end of this and we go back and we debrief. Um, and our genetics colleagues have been fantastic. So obviously, I'm sure you'll know that all of our positive samples go for genetic testing as well. And we know about the variant. In the first wave, we, we mirrored in exactly the same way that we're doing now. So London and Cumbria were the two high prevalence areas. And then the rest of the country caught up slowly. And this time around with the variant, it's done exactly the same. 
Now, whether that's because we have an aged population in North Cumbria, um, a lot of people come here to retire. It's a, it's a lovely place to, to be in the lakes. We also have a huge number of people that have holiday homes here. Um, so people are traveling into the area for holidays a lot more. And we also thought in the first wave, it might be because we have a high number of people in our population that go skiing. Um, so people that had traveled to Italy and France and picked it up and brought it back. Um, but these are all things that we need to understand the epidemiology of. And we're still learning so much about this virus. We don't have all the answers yet. Um, we've got an amazing um, director of public health in North Cumbria who's been really fast to respond. Um, and he actually petitioned the Department for Education um, at the weekend to ask um, the schools not to be opened. Um, so we've been, we've been ahead of it all the time, which has been great. But unfortunately, this time, um, the virus has really taken hold this time um, and the trust is under significant pressure just at the moment. Um, so it's, it's, it is very, very difficult. We have the luxury of being able to rely on our regional colleagues for support and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will understand that as well. Um, we're part of the North One network <coughs> under the laboratory consolidation. We didn't consolidate, we're still seven separate laboratories. Um, and to be honest, if we if we had have consolidated, I think we'd have been in a very difficult position about now, whereas we've been able to flex and move services around so that if Gateshead, for example, was struggling to stay on top of their testing, they referred to us and we completed their testing. And when we've had supply issues, we've been able to refer to Newcastle or South Tees. Um, but the relationship with laboratory managers and pathology services across these regions has been absolutely critical to being able to maintain service provision throughout. And it's been fantastic to be able to work like that. And that's still going on now, being able to um, look at the bigger picture from our patients. Um, so when our ITU is at capacity, who we can look to as our neighboring organizations to move our patients to keep them as safe as we can. So to end the podcast then, moving into the new year now in this new role as president-elect at this very difficult time, um, do you have a message that you'd like to say to the members? Yeah, um, I've, I've been I'm reasonably active on Twitter. I'm still relatively new to it. Um, and I did post something at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. I think the key message is just a massive thank you I know they are running on fumes. They're really tired from the work that they've done so far. Um, I think the key word that I hear with boring regularity is the fact that it's just relentless. And it is, but you're doing an amazing job and your patients appreciate everything that you do. So keep your chins up, you're doing fantastic. Let's get through it together. Brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, Deborah, for your time and for coming onto the podcast today. Good luck with everything. We'll see a lot of you, I'm sure. No. <laughs> Welcome to Lab Life, a series of mini interviews where we speak to members with the most extraordinary and marvellous of pastimes. And I'm with Kit Heath. 
Kip is a biomedical scientist with over 10 years experience and specializes in virology and immunology. She's currently deputy lead healthcare scientist and lead quality and risk assurance manager for Great Ormond Street Hospital. She's passionate about science education, communication and outreach, and is a recipient of the Queen's Ebola Medal for a two-month volunteering deployment in Sierra Leone during the outbreak in 2015. Last year, she started doing science-themed stand-up comedy and plans on starting a PhD this year. Hi, Kip. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming on. So it looks like what you do as a biomedical scientist is hugely varied. So maybe you could start by telling us about it in a little bit more detail. My current role is the quality lead for physiological sciences. So I oversee nine departments through UCAS. And then I support the deputy lead healthcare scientists at the Trust in order to develop education and training, which is how I started working with the National School of Healthcare Science as an apprenticeship assessor. And then they asked me if I would start doing IQA for the assessments. So the next step up. And for the science communications, I've always been involved in SciComm. I did my first public engagement events when I was 16. When I was at school, we ran science fairs with primary school students. And basically, I'm incapable of saying no. So just this morning, I took a job as a university lecturer on an hourly paid basis, even though I have no time because I already have four paid jobs. And now this one. And I'm doing a PG cert in health education and I'm starting a PhD. And um, we mentioned in the intro that you, during the Ebola crisis, you spent two months volunteering with the response over there. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that. So I, so I signed up back in 2014 for the COVID, for the Ebola, sorry, wrong pandemic, yeah. um, the Ebola outbreak, uh, partly because a friend of mine who I worked, I'd previously worked with on the STP was already out there doing some work so I could see see how she was contributing which was really nice i'm always up for something new mm. so when it came the call came around from public health england for anyone with pcr experience i just went yeah and then my co-worker pointed out we should probably ask our manager before we signed up to leave the country mm. uh, <laughs> so we did that and it was it was a it, personally and professionally it's one of the most fulfilling things i've ever done mm. uh, and i would not have changed going for the world uh, it was, it was definitely stressful at certain points. Getting there was a very interesting experience. I ended up holding a stranger's baby on my lap for six hours on the plane. Oh my goodness! Uh, As part of science, your science communication and outreach work, you've also started um, some stand-up, stand-up comedy, science themed. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? How did you go about starting science stand-up? So I started, so in January 2020, I went to the London STEM Ambassador Forum. Mm. Uh, it had, I'd recently started a new job. 2019 was a very difficult year for me. I had a nervous breakdown at work and I just wanted something a bit new. And I, so I turned up and Dr. Steve Cross did a talk on science comedy and how you engage people and an awful lot of background into the way that a way the way that a lot of scientists do public engagement isn't actually particularly effective because they're not doing it for the audience they're doing it for themselves mm. and we he then said he did science show off which is a, a collection of science themed comedy shows and did anybody want to sign up and i said yes and to this day i do not know what persuaded me to sign up 
And three weeks later, I was stood in a toilet cubicle in St. Albans Museum. And it dawned on me that I'm not funny. Like no one's ever called me funny. I had no idea what I was doing. I have never had any training. I have never anything. A friend of mine, her father is a comedian and I asked for help and she just went, oh, well, he's just funny. It's not help. <laughs> and also that public speaking terrifies me. Like I vomit every time I have to speak in public. Mm-hmm. And so it all turned out to be a horrible, it was a horrible, horrible mistake. And what on earth was I doing? Right. But I got on stage. And at that point it was impossible to leave because you're standing on stage and it was actually the venue was a converted jail and magistrate's court. So it was very well locked. And I just started Mm. and people laughed and I had such a rush of adrenaline that I've just gone back again and again and again. And while they continue to pay me to stand on stage and tell jokes, I will still do it. And what kind of, um, when you say science comedy, what do you mean? What kind of jokes do you make? So I do. So the first, that first set, I did a story about how I got to Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak. Right. I've done sets on being a health and safety officer, despite the fact I chopped off part of my own finger during lockdown. Mm-hmm. So the fact that I'm probably not the right person to be in charge of your health and safety. Uh, I've done sets. Recently, I've branched out into non-science themed comedy. So I did a show last week where I did a set on the time that I got accused of being a terrorist in Albuquerque Airport. Wow. Because only me. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's been a ride. And I've joined a, this year I got onto a one-year mentorship and science communication development program that's run in partnership with The Welcome. Mm. And I've met 14 other brilliant researchers and scientists who also want to develop science communication. And it's amazing. I love it. If only I could be paid to do this full time. But if it, you know, if I could ever be, you know, live at the Apollo, then why not? (laughs) Maybe one day. Dream big. (laughs) Biomedical science at the Apollo. (laughs) Why not? Why not? Weirder things have happened. (laughs) Anything's possible. (laughs) So, um, also, this year, you're going to start a PhD. Yeah. It's been a long time coming for you, right? It's been a long time coming. I've been trying to put this together for at least five years at this point. Mm. It's just, you get to the point where it's very difficult to give up work full time. And I've now got funding from UCL's Precision AMR grant to do yeah. the pilot data. So it is, it's very slowly moving forward, but I feel that before I retire, I should have this in place. So, yeah, so you mentioned the grant you got from Precision AMR. And so, so what is the project about? Because as I understand, you're trying to find a new way to diagnose sepsis. So you can, we can treat patients quicker and it helps in combating AMR. So mm-hmm. tell us about the project in a bit more detail. So the big thing we're looking at doing is, is say, reduce, so changing the diagnostic pathway for sepsis. That's mm-hmm. the big So sepsis and bloodstream infections have a mortality rate of about 30-35% and patients as soon as they are suspected sepsis will be put onto empirical antibiotic therapy which may or may not be effective and obviously we know that ineffective antibiotic therapy can also seriously contribute to drug resistance and is not supporting patient outcomes either. So we are looking at instead of the current method of culture and so sort of subculture 
and then antibiogram to look at using a Moldytoff mass spec and seeing if we can use drug resistant, we can identify drug resistance mechanisms from the bacteria and then test directly from the blood culture bottle rather than growing up purity cultures. So this is the hope. Mm. And it would then ideally get time from sample receipt to a result down to eight hours rather than current 48, which would improve the chances of, well, lower the chances of drug resistance mechanisms and also in, uh, increase patient positive outcomes, which is really important as well. So it's a twofold win. Thank you to Kip Heath for joining us on this instalment of Lab Life and you'll be able to find links in our show notes to one of her comedy sketches and our news story about her PhD project. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.